0: This episode of Israel Story is brought to you by our seasoned sponsors, The Jerusalem Portfolio, a professionally managed investment portfolio of Israeli-focused public companies listed on the Tel Aviv, US, and London stock exchanges. Visit mystakeinisrael.com to learn more about how you can invest in the Israeli innovation, creativity, and vision that made the desert bloom. There's no better gift or investment than owning a small piece of the Israeli economy. The process is easy and convenient, and in just a few minutes, you can both make a wise financial investment and an ideological statement. Visit mystakenisrael.com to open your account today. This episode is also sponsored by Lisa Farber and Justin Liberman in honor of their daughter Saskia's 17th birthday. Saskia lives in Melbourne, Australia, where she attends Mount Scopus Memorial College. She's passionate about being Jewish and cares deeply about Israel. Saskia is a wonderful daughter, a beautiful sister, a caring granddaughter, and is truly loved by her many friends. She makes everyone proud And all of us here at Israel Story join her family in wishing her a very happy birthday and a great year ahead. Mazal tov, Saskia. And now, to our episode.
1: We are Jews and we're davening and we put on talit and tefillin and on Torah reading days we read Torah and we raise our voices. We're not sexual objects that have to repress ourselves because men can't control themselves or because whatever about men, it's not about men, it's about us and being Jews. And we just do it.
0: That's Shulamit Magnus. Now, perhaps you've never heard her name before, but you've probably heard about her activities. You see, she was among the founders of a group that's been in the news quite a lot in recent years. The Western Wall is the epicenter of the struggle over Jewish identity today. Women Women of the Wall...
1: Women of the
2: Wall... Women Women of the Wall...
0: Women of the Wall... The Women of the Wall... And that wall, it's the Western Wall, the Kotel. For the last 30 years, Shulamit and her sisters-in-arms have been fighting for the right to pray there, as women, as Jews, just like the men do. Theirs is a public and legal struggle for freedom of religion, freedom of worship, gender equality— But it's also about much more than that. About how we view our holy places, our religious landscape, and at the end of the day, this magical experiment called the Jewish state. For most of those 30 years, their struggle received little attention. It slipped under the radar and populated the back pages of Jerusalem's local press. But from time to time, And especially in the last few years, it became national, even international, news. Many of you will already have a strong opinion about Women of the Wall. And honestly, it's hard not to. But our story today isn't just about their campaign. It's about friendship and camaraderie. And it explores how idealism and pragmatism can often tear such bonds apart. Hey, I'm Mishy Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So we've reached the final episode of our mini-series, in which we're telling the tales of some of Israel's most important walls. Over the last three episodes, we've gone searching for Hulda, a Jewish-Arab baby born at the Kotel in the middle of the Six-Day War. We've heard how folks have dealt with, built, and fought against the separation wall or security fence. We visited pivotal soccer games, explored powerful firewalls, and even heard a never-written opera by Leonard Bernstein. And today, in the last episode of this wall journey, we go back to the place where we began, the Kotel. But this time, we won't meet Holocaust survivors who became Muslim housewives. We'll meet Jews, who, in the name of their Judaism, set off on a lifelong crusade. So welcome to The Wall, Part 4. This wall is my wall. Zev Levi will take it from here.
1: I was 15 years old when my family came to Israel for the first time.
3: Shulamit Magnus grew up in an orthodox family in New York. Back in the early 60s, she was a bit of a goody two-shoes.
1: Very religious, very obedient. I did what I was told.
3: She was short and slight with a serious-looking face. While her peers were obsessed with the Beatles, the Stones, and the latest fashion in miniskirts, she was gobbling up biographies of Marie Curie and Helen Keller. For fun, she liked to learn Torah, particularly the weeping prophet Jeremiah. She told me she was in love with Jeremiah. Once to stop her older sister from barging into her room, Shulamit wrote her a poem of rebuke in Jeremiah's passionate Hebrew. Just like the prophet's own attempts to persuade the people to repent, it didn't really work. But when the Magnuses decided to go on a family trip to Israel the land of Jeremiah and his fellow prophets, Shulamit was in seventh heaven. For her, it was like going to Disneyland, just better.
1: This was in 66, so it was before we got Jerusalem.
3: At the time, Israel only controlled West Jerusalem. The eastern parts, including the Old City and the Kotel, the holiest Jewish site in the world, were under Jordanian rule. Now, the Kotel is a section of the outer retaining wall of King Herod's ancient Jewish temple. But over the centuries, ever since the destruction of that temple in 70 AD, it's become a symbol, a dream. Jewish tradition says that the physical world was created from the spot where the temple stood, that it's God's entry point into our world. Whether or not you believe that, It's clear that for generations of Jews all over the world, the Kotel was and is a deeply significant space. And like so many others, what 15-year-old God-fearing Shulamit wanted to do more than anything else was to come and pray at the wall. But of course, she couldn't. When she arrived in Jerusalem, she discovered that Jews were barred from visiting it. They could get close and even see the old city's rooftops. But that was it, a barbed wire border with menacing looking Jordanian guards stood between her and the heart of her Disneyland.
1: My sister and I, we knew there's a hotel and we knew we couldn't get to it. And so we would walk around looking for tall buildings or any place where we thought we could see over.
3: The teenage Magnus sisters were crushed. They had come all this way and just like Moses, they could only look at their promised land from afar. And what did they want after all? Just to pray, to touch. In their minds, they didn't pose a threat to anybody, so why were they being kept away? Why were they being punished?
1: We felt the terrific deprivation and a sense of injustice. Why can't we go there?
3: The only thing to do was to get as close as possible, and even that was risky.
1: And I remember they would say sometimes the Jordanians shoot from on top, so we had that little drama.
3: The Kotel was only a stone's throw away, but Shulamit and her sister might as well have been back home on the streets of Manhattan.
1: This was etched in my memory, so it was an extremely emotional experience.
3: Eleven months later, in early June 1967, Shulamit was back in school in New York. But she couldn't concentrate. Her mind was still in Israel which was now at war with Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and, that's right, Jordan.
2: During the daylight hours, the Israeli Air Force struck
3: a devastating blow at the Air Force of
0: (laughs)
4: Egypt. ...and the announcer on Cairo
0: Radio calls for the destruction of Israel and a giant Arab onslaught on Tel Aviv.
3: Unable to pay attention to her algebra teacher while Israel's existence hung in the balance, Shulamit snuck her transistor radio into class, threading the earpiece up her long-sleeved shirt and under her collar.
1: I heard when they announced that Israel had gotten Jerusalem, that we had gotten the Old City. And I just tore out of that room. I didn't ask. I just ran.
3: This was the greatest moment of Shulamit's life.
1: I've never davened like that in my life.
3: Jerusalem was reunited. And after nearly two millennia, her Kotel was once again in Jewish sovereign hands. The Israeli troops, as she saw it, had fought and pushed the Jordanians out of Jerusalem on her behalf, so that she could now visit her wall. Within days, Israel dismantled Shchunata Mughrabim, the Palestinian neighborhood in front of the wall, and built a big plaza. A week later, on the festival of Shavuot, it was officially opened to the public. Professor Chana Kahat, the founder of Kolech, Israel's first Jewish Orthodox feminist organization, remembers that day.
4: Oh, it was very, very special. People just ran to the hotel. All the people of Jerusalem came. There were a lot of uh, people dancing together men, women, religious, secular. Uh, it was full, full, full of people who were very, very excited.
3: Shulamit and her family wanted to see the miracle with their own eyes. The following year, 1968, they returned to Israel and immediately made their way up to Jerusalem. Shulamit traced the steps she had taken on the previous visit, pausing at the once forbidding boundary.
1: And all of a sudden, what we couldn't do we could we can just go.
3: She had dreamt of crossing this border and now
1: oh my god, I'm just walking there it's nothing. I cross the street and I keep going and I walk and I just go there.
3: Shulamit finally reached the kotel and it was just as magical as she had always imagined. <laughs> Three months later, much to her dismay, Shulamit had to go back to school in America. The following year, she went off to college and immersed herself, big surprise for a lover of Jeremiah, in the study of Jewish texts. Ultimately, she became an academic, a professor of Jewish history at Oberlin. She got married, started a family, and even though life kept her on that side of the Atlantic, she'd return to Israel frequently. And whenever she did, she told me, she'd go straight to the Kotel.
1: This was kind of my custom, it was this ritual.
3: With each visit, however, she'd notice subtle changes. The age-old stones stayed more or less the same, but the context around them started to shift. You see, right after the Six-Day War, the government of Israel had to decide what to do with the Kotel. Would it become a museum? A pilgrimage site? A national monument? A civic center? A backdrop for high profile photo ops? A synagogue? The solution was a bit of each. But that immediately raised all kinds of questions. Like who would oversee the site? And what kind of events would take place there? Ultimately, in late June 1967, just a few weeks after the end of the war, the Knesset passed the so called Protection of Holy Places Law. The new law stipulated that while people are allowed to visit and worship, they aren't allowed to desecrate the sites. The legislators didn't really specify what constituted a desecration, but they did say that doing so was a jailable offence. In accordance with this new law, a rabbi, an orthodox rabbi, was named as the Kotel's site administrator. And his first order of business? Making sure that the Kotel had all the necessary infrastructure and equipment for orthodox prayer services. That meant prayer books, baskets with kippot and talitot, Torah scrolls, tables on which to read them, and, importantly, a permanent mechitza, a physical barrier separating the men and women's sections. For a wall that had seemingly seen everything, this was a new feature. For centuries, and you can see this in countless old paintings and pictures of the Kotel, there was no separation between the sexes, because the ruling powers forbade it. But now Israel was the ruling power, and the Kotel was a synagogue. And synagogues have rules. In keeping with the orthodox tradition of men leading services, All the Torah scrolls were placed on the men's side, which, incidentally, was significantly larger than the women's. The mechitza itself wasn't, as in many synagogues, a cloth curtain or a row of plastic planters. Instead, it was a tall barrier made of brick and metal.
1: The women's space was defined, first of all, and then it got smaller, and then it got smaller, and then the mechitza got higher.
3: Now, Shulamit had grown up in an Orthodox home, and was still orthodox herself. But throughout her 20s, as the rules around the Kotel began to take shape, it became more and more complicated for her to find her place there. Her wall stopped being an instant portal to spiritual and religious bliss. She found it almost impossible to hear a service, let alone participate in one.
1: And I went there once and there was a bar mitzvah. And the mother of the bar mitzvah boy was straining to see and to hear. And it was a scene of terrible degradation. She was on tiptoe and she had her neck uh, straight up and her head thrown back trying to see. I don't know if she could hear anything. It was her son. It was her child. She, she, she raised him for nine months inside her body and then raised him for 13 years. It was, it was horrible to see.
3: For a while, Shulamit had been struggling with the way mainstream Orthodox Judaism treated women. But seeing that woman straining to observe her own son's bar mitzvah at Judaism's holiest site, that was more than she could stomach.
1: And the combination of feeling connected to that place and feeling degraded there as a woman was too much. It's like the definition of an abusive relationship. And I decided, you know, this is too awful. I can't. I can't do this.
3: Shulamit stopped going to the Kotel. Her Kotel. Altogether. In many ways, Anat Hoffman's life was very different from Shulamit's. She was born and raised in a secular family in Jerusalem. In 1964, when she was 10 years old a local swimming coach noticed a certain fearlessness in her and decided to make her into a champ. Even though she could barely float when they began training, the coach was right, and Anat went on to win many national titles and medals. When she quit the pool in the mid-70s, she set off on a career as a social and political activist. She wrote a scathing weekly column against Bezek, the phone company and was later elected to be a city councilwoman in Jerusalem. But as different as their backgrounds are, Anat and Shulamit have one major thing in common. Here's Anat describing a visit to the Kotel in the late 70s.
2: I went to the wall with my brother's two little daughters. Uh, One was, I think, a year old and one was five. I held them both in my arms. I wanted to show the little girls how men are dancing with the Torah. So I stood on a bench and one of the men shouted from the other side of the partition, safsal. Prostitute, get off the bench. I was extremely insulted. What a crazy thing to shout at a woman who's trying to show two little girls the, the Torah. I went with them to the ladies' room, and I remember telling these two little girls that the place for women at the wall is the ladies' room! Ay, ay, ay.
3: Following that incident, Anat couldn't stand being at the Kotel, just like Shulamit.
2: Why would I want to go? This is the discotheque of the ultra-orthodox. My foot is not going there. In
3: 1988, Two decades after Shulamit's first visit to the Kotel, she was in Israel for the year on a sabbatical at the Hebrew University. Just by chance, both she and Anat, who didn't know each other, attended the first international Jewish feminist conference. And there, they heard a New Yorker by the name of Rivka Hout describing a new and exciting project she ran in the States called the Women's Tefillah Network.
5: Congregations of women only, who gather together, usually for Shabbat morning prayers once a month, with a full Torah and Torah reading. It follows Orthodox interpretation of Jewish law.
3: Rivka passed away in 2014. This is a recording of her talking at a 2010 panel hosted by Jofa, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance.
5: And I had the idea, instead of just talking about this, to organize such a group at the Kotel.
1: And so I heard this circulating rumor, like, you want to come to a meeting about going to the Kotel to have a women's tefillah the next morning.
3: A halachic women's prayer at the Kotel? This was music to Shulamit's ears. She vividly remembers that meeting. More than a hundred women pulled chairs into a big circle and discussed what a Torah-reading women's prayer at the Kotel might look like.
1: You know, what will we do? How will we do it? And what this offered to me was... The possibility of going to that place and feeling good, as opposed to feeling awful. And to read Torah there, it offered the possibility of feeling whole.
3: But Anat, the former swim champ, remained a bit skeptical.
2: I'm not starry-eyed romantic like the North American women who were there. They were expecting, you know, a spiritual experience. I knew what's what's coming. You can go, but I wasn't going to join, and neither was any of the Israeli women that I know.
3: Starry-eyed or not, Rivka convinced the women to go for it. Like a seasoned community organizer, she assigned them roles. Norma was in charge of the Torah scroll, Deborah was going to lead the prayer, and Shulamit was given an especially sensitive task.
1: She asked me if I would read Torah. I had to go home and like cram that Torah reading real fast. Do you remember which one it was? Totally, totally. It was Yaakov's dream. (laughs) Chalom chalamti. Amazing.
3: Despite her initial reluctance, even Anat was persuaded to join and was given a role.
2: She asked me as someone who's a social activist, do I own a folding table? The answer is yes. You cannot be a social activist without a folding table and a megaphone.
3: Everything, it seemed, was set for the following morning. Now, before we continue to the events of that fateful day in December 1988, I should just say that, contrary to popular belief, perhaps, there's nothing about women's services that goes against orthodox halacha or law. One of the frequent arguments leveled against such initiatives has to do with kol isha, a woman's voice. According to mainstream halachic interpretations, the voice of a woman is intimate, or distracting to men, and thus prohibited but once the prayer is for women only, that reasoning basically goes out the window. Still, the idea of women reading the Torah, or leading prayers on their own, challenges orthodox tradition. Many see it not as a new and meaningful way for women to engage in prayer, but rather as a disturbing fad, as a bunch of radical feminists using religious ritual to make a political point. Take Eliana Aaron for example. Eliana is the director of a medical case management company in Israel.
5: What's cool about the Kotel is that you'll see people from all different nations, you know, uh, from all different religious backgrounds coming to pray and putting on a kippah and the women wearing something on their hair and respecting the religion, which is the Jewish nation. The great majority of the country, even those who are completely not religious, want to have a traditional meaning orthodox Kotel. When their kid gets a bar mitzvah, he goes to an Orthodox shul and their mother is behind the mechitza. And that's how it works. You know, even Ben-Gurion said, the synagogue that I don't go to is Orthodox.
3: As far as she's concerned, women's services at the Kotel are no more than an unnecessary provocation. But for Rivka, Shulamit, Anat, and many others, it represented something different. It represented freedom. So early the next morning, 70 women from the conference got on buses and headed to the Kotel Plaza.
1: It was pretty early.
3: Shulamit again.
1: It wasn't packed. I mean, it was a weekday. You know, there were women there.
3: Rivka led the group into the women's section and directed the service, queuing those leading the prayer. Shulamit recalls feeling that they weren't just looking at the Kotel from afar. They were breathing in its stones, its history, its sanctity. They prayed in unison, and Shulamit reconnected to a sense of spirituality she thought had been lost.
1: It was a true religious experience. We're in that space, and I realize, oh my God, look where we are. This place is a miracle. We hear a woman lead fila, and we hear women's voices ring out in prayer. It's just inexpressibly beautiful. Astoundingly empowering. So we got through much of it. Without anything, and that's what I was aware of, mostly was us, until the men started screaming.
3: The service may have been kosher according to the letter of the law, but it felt too foreign to some of the other worshippers at the Kotel. When Shulamit opened the Torah scroll and began chanting the parashah, two elderly Haredi women started pushing the group to get them to stop. The scuffle caught the attention of some Haredi men, who stood up on chairs to see over the barrier. Shulamit remembers one man yelling, I protest, I protest! Very quickly, the jostling and screaming got louder and more intense. They could feel that something bad was about to happen.
1: They became aware that we had a Torah. I think that's what set them off. You know, we got nervous.
3: You guys immediately thought that...
1: We're going to be assaulted. We're going to be attacked. That's when I think Norma said, we have to get out of here now.
3: The women quickly rushed through the remainder of the service and got back on the bus. Despite the somewhat unceremonious exit, they had succeeded.
1: We did go out singing. We sang in rounds, it was wonderful. All the way from the hotel to the bus. (laughs)
3: Once they were all safely on the bus, Rivka Hout stood up and said, My dear friends, today we redeemed Torah for women. Shulamit felt as if she had reclaimed her kata.
1: When people talk about religious experiences of like a different order, you're in an altered state, this was. This was. Totally. I mean, we were just flying. I would
2: not be the same person if I had not experienced that tefillah.
3: Anat was also energized by the reception she had witnessed.
2: When I went back on the bus with my folding table, something changed in me. I thought, this can't go on.
3: Shulamit, Anat, and several others began talking. They didn't want this to be a one-time thing, a zbeng vagamarnu, as we say in Hebrew. And as the conversation that began that day on the bus continued, they started imagining a new idea a group, a movement.
2: We started the Women of the Wall.
3: Women of the Wall. The idea was to hold a woman's prayer, just like that first one Rivka had organized, once a month.
2: And we decided to follow in the footsteps of the Women's Tefillah Network, to be only women, to be multi-denominational, and to have a presence there every Rosh Chodesh, every new month.
3: Though the services followed orthodox law, they were designed in an inclusive way that allowed women of every Jewish denomination to have an active role. But despite these lofty goals, their beginnings were inauspicious. Most of the women from the conference soon flew back home to America, and the group that remained in Jerusalem was tiny. Anat was named the chairperson, and Shulamit, who you'll remember was here on sabbatical for the year was one of the few reliable attendees.
1: Within a few weeks, there was the next fila. There was significant violence at that one. The men burst across the Mechitza, you know, like that's forbidden by their rules, and attacked us.
3: But that didn't deter the women, quite the opposite. Israeli paratroopers Shulamit and her friends reasoned hadn't liberated the Kotel just for Orthodox men. So they returned the next month and the month after that.
1: And what happened that first year was craziest experiences I've ever had in my life of just raw, unmitigated violence. Every month, I never knew like what, what craziness I was going to encounter. You know, I would pack a medical bag. I would pack like first aid and I would pack something like to put over my face if I'm tear gassed <laughs> I'm going to Davin? I mean, you go to shul in the morning. Is that what you do when you go to shul?
3: They encountered riots. Dirty diapers and cups of boiling coffee were hurled at them. And throughout, she says, the men wouldn't stop assaulting them, yelling and cursing.
1: You know, you should die of cancer and your child should be killed in an accident. Like, why? They threw chairs, metal benches. We have photos of this. People got hurt.
3: And where were the authorities, you might ask? Well... While men threw metal chairs at Shulamit and her prayer group, the police basically did nothing.
1: They were not protecting us.
3: In fact, when they did spring into action, it was to arrest the women on the charge of disturbing the peace. Go to our website where you can see pictures of them, shoulder pads, frizzy 80s hairdos and all, being dragged out of the plaza. Now, you might think the uproar that this prayer caused is a thing of the past. But that was then, and now is now. But, well, 30 years after those early services, I recently visited the Kotel and basically encountered a redo of the exact scene Sholamit had described. Take David Meyerfeld, one of the protesters I spoke to.
4: A Jewish religious place, a place that's here for religion, has to be done in the orthodox way. And therefore, when they're coming, that's interfering. That's interfering. And interfering
3: is them just doing their own thing. Yeah, but they're doing it in our
4: place. What makes it so severe is because they're coming to make themselves known to everyone that they're also a part of
2: religion.
4: That's something we cannot accept.
2: When they say, I want to keep these women for my children, they're right
3: a nut again.
2: Because a child, a Jewish child who's educated, is exposed to women of the wall, will ask, why not? Why not is a very subversive question. And especially when the answer to why not is, hey, there is no halachic reason for why not. (laughs) Actually, it's halachic, why not? It topples a lot of heads and their right to go to war to try to keep the power where it is.
4: Reform, you're not welcome over here. Please, quickly. Reform I was saying, that, look at the Arabs. When someone comes and, and wants to do something against their religion, they're ready to kill the person. Come. Wait, and that's a good thing or a bad thing? It's bad to kill. It's good to be serious about religion.
3: Eliana, the medical case management exec, understands where people like David and his fellow protesters are coming from.
5: As somebody who's coming in from the outside, by offending people, you are contaminating the spirituality of the place. Obviously, we don't want people throwing rocks at them, but the minority has to respect the site rules.
3: Of course, Shulamit never felt like she was coming in from the outside. This was her Kotel too.
1: Where Jews went for hundreds of years was to the Kotel. This is what I was raised on as a kid. This is why I wanted to go there when I was 15 years old and couldn't go and experienced in my bones the feeling of injustice and deprivation. This has nothing to do with halacha. It was just that we were not women who knew how to stay in our space, in our place, the place that they determined for us. We were violating that, and we were. And that infuriated them.
3: Today, the Kotel's administrator, whose salary is paid by the Israeli taxpayer, is Rabbi Shmuel Rabinovich. He doesn't give interviews, but his press office directed us to speak to Gedalia Goldstein, one of the Western Wall Heritage Foundation's tour guides, who echoed what Rabbi Rabinovich has said publicly.
2: This is a place that's been opened up
0: as, as a synagogue, and as such, it has certain standards. The rules of a place are set to try to keep the peace, to try to keep a proper atmosphere, respecting the place and the people who are there. Wherever you are and whoever you dress, when you're coming here, you're coming here as a son or a daughter. To God, to Hashem. Uh, And He wants to see you. He wants to see you. This episode is the final installment of our Wall mini-series. And these episodes you've been hearing, well, they're based on our latest live show, which we took all over North America in May. The live show includes all kinds of things we can't give you in the podcast version, like a live band of amazingly talented Israeli musicians on stage, stunning visuals, videos, street art, and so much more. But don't worry, we've got some good news for you. We're coming back to North America with The Wall in early 2020, so, if you'd like us to come perform near you, contact us at live at israelstory.org. Okay, so we're in the middle of Zev Levi's story about Shulamit, Anat, and their fellow women of the wall. We reached out, by the way, to the police. But they refused to be interviewed for the piece. Before the break, we heard how the movement was born, and what fierce and violent opposition it faced back in the late 80s and early 90s. But the truth of the matter is that despite all the mounds of news coverage and verbiage about the women of the wall, despite high-profile compromises and settlements, despite real ruptures between the government of Israel and segments of world Jewry, despite all that, not much has changed. Zev will tell us about these developments, but mainly he'll tell us about two tough fighters, sisters in arms, who, when faced with a new reality, had to choose between pragmatism and idealism. Here's Zev again.
3: Back in 1989, Shulamit, Anat, and some other members of Women of the Wall brought their case to the Supreme Court, but the court kept postponing the hearings. In the meantime, Shulamit returned to her life in the US, and Haredi politicians successfully introduced laws regulating permissible conduct at holy sites. Time passed, and since the court hadn't yet adjudicated, a new status quo emerged. Anat and co. would pray, quietly, in the women's section. Once they reached the part with the Torah reading, they'd move elsewhere, outside the Kotel Plaza. Only then would they don their prayer shawls. So to most onlookers at the Kotel, they blended in with other female worshippers and essentially became invisible. There was no real way to tell that they were even praying together. And so the clashes at their monthly services gradually lessened. The heat that had accompanied their arrival on the scene cooled down and women of the wall basically became ignorable.
2: But we came every month in pregnancy, in Intifada, In the rain, in the snow, every month there was a presence of women of the wall.
3: For years, Anat admits, the group was small.
2: I'm ashamed to tell you what is the lowest number we ever reached. But for a good 20 years, we were (laughs) very few.
3: Shalomit kept in touch with Anat and her other women of the wall sisters and joined them at the Kotel whenever she visited Israel. But the wider Israeli public rarely heard about the group. After multiple judicial recommendations, committees, reports and appeals, in 2003, the Supreme Court finally ruled on the matter. Women of the wall, they determined, did indeed have a legal right to hold services at the Kotel.
1: But they said that it's politically sensitive and that we should go to Robinson's Arch. That was the first time that that was formally proposed.
3: Robinson's Arch is right next to the Kotel. In fact, it's a continuation of the very same Western retaining wall of Herod's temple. But it isn't the Kotel. And that's probably why the court suggested it as a compromise. On paper, at least, it seemed like a win-win. The women would get their sanctioned prayers right next to the Kotel, and the Orthodox establishment wouldn't have to see or hear them. The few members of women of the wall faced the dilemma. Was it time to be practical? Was it time to give up their crusade and seek a truce? Anat, Shulamit and their friends were unanimous.
1: We absolutely rejected that deal because it's not the Kotel. What matters to me is not historical artifact, but sacred Jewish memory. This site was sanctified by Jews for hundreds of years who went there. So to say it's the same thing, why don't you go there is an insult to intelligence.
3: Agreeing to hide themselves far away from the public eye so that Orthodox men wouldn't have to be reminded of their existence, it was simply out of the question. And besides, moving their prayer to Robinson's Arch had another downside. Women of the Wall was made up of individuals of every denomination. There were Reform members, Orthodox members, and basically everything in between. Now, as long as their prayers took place at the Kotel's women's section, they were only attended by women. And that's what made them, at least for the Orthodox women, strictly halachic. At Robinson's Arch, on the other hand, you couldn't exclude men should they want to join, and there was no michitza So if they moved their services there, the Orthodox members of Women of the Wall would have to stop praying with the group. Everyone seemed to be on the same page, and the group stayed at the Kotel, largely coasting by under the radar. That changed in late 2009, when a few members of the small group began wearing their talitot, their prayer shawls, inside the women's section. This disturbed the delicate status quo, and the police responded by detaining them. It was back to 1989 all over again, except that this time it was in the age of social media, iPhone cameras, and around-the-clock cable TV.
1: Today, Israeli police arrested five women
5: activists. To ...public the discomfort government. of others. ...to be and Women of the wall.
3: It was a game of cat and mouse. Women would defiantly wear their prayer shawls, the police would detain them, interrogate them for a few hours, and then release them without charges. When Shulamit returned in 2012 for yet another sabbatical year, she too was arrested. So was Anat.
2: He grabbed my arm and he uh, bent it around my back. And he started marching me towards the Jerusalem police station at the wall.
3: With the police detentions came heightened media attention, larger protests, and heated public debates. There were pluralist voices and sectarian ones. People who condemned the rabbinate and those who criticized the fetishization of the Kotel. There were misogynists and feminists, and some, like Eliana, who claimed that Anat, Shulamit, and their cohort were actually harming women's causes.
5: If you're fighting for women to be given appropriate rights after birth, for them to be able to nurse their children, for them to be able to get childcare so they could work, to make sure they're being paid equally to men and giving the opportunities of getting ahead career-wise, even if they choose to have children, I'm all for that. That's great. That's progression. I'm good with that. But as soon as you start telling me, but we have to be like men and we have to... Do the same things as them. I feel like that's really counterproductive because what you're doing is saying that you're not secure in your own skin and that you're not comfortable with the differences that you were born with. Women are not supposed to be like men. We do not have the men's hormones, DNA, bodies, minds, or anything else. And I think that aiming towards something like that is anti-feminism.
3: Perhaps unsurprisingly, reactions like this, coupled with viral images of the arrests, actually helped women of the wall. Here's a nut.
2: The more they resisted us, the more we were able to recruit more women to come.
3: Monthly prayer attendance shot up to more than 130. Many of the newcomers were members of the small reform and conservative movements in Israel. And these new faces, they injected energy into the movement and soon took on leadership positions as board members. Now that women of the wall were once again a political hot potato, the Robinson's arch option resurfaced. But Shulamit and her sisters still sung in unison. They continued to view it as a slap in the face. And as far as traditionalists like Eliana were concerned, that was simply proof that they were no more than petty provocateurs.
5: If someone is sincere and wants to pray, Wonderful. Robinson's Arch is an equally religious place that will not offend anybody. But if your purpose is to offend or to have a political statement, and if you really want to be arrested and you want to have media coverage and you want attention, then you have to stay at the hotel and protest and get arrested and, and make a big deal about it.
3: Fearing that this could get out of hand and mushroom into a serious crisis with American Jewry, the Prime Minister himself got involved. In December 2012, Benjamin Netanyahu sent an emissary to try and convince the women of the wall to move to Robinson's Arch. Here he is, speaking at the General Assembly of Jewish Federations of North America.
4: We will soon conclude a long overdue understanding that will ensure that the Kotel is a source of unity for our people, not a point of division. As Prime Minister of Israel, I will always ensure that all Jews can feel at home in Israel. Reform Jews, conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, all Jews.
3: Netanyahu signaled that if they were to come to the negotiating table, women of the wall stood to gain even more ground. And that dangling carrot managed to do what more than two decades of ongoing harassment and abuse at the Kotel had not. It managed to divide the women. There were some, led by Annat, who began to see the option of Robinson's arch in an entirely new light.
2: A grassroots organization fights to be at a table where policy is made. If we're invited to the prime minister's office and we want to change policy, we gotta put our butts at that seat.
3: She realized it would come at a cost.
2: So it was clear that if we negotiate, we will have to give up our place at the women's section. And the question is, under what conditions are we willing to let go of the women's section? And some of our sisters said, under no condition are we willing to leave the women's section. I feel that this is an untenable position. Not only me, most of our board felt this is untenable. We will have to compromise. We will have to play the political game if we want to make gains and change policy.
3: Compromising, she said, was choosing the harder path. It's much easier to remain a purist. This approach had its opponents.
2: So we had a vote, a very dramatic vote, and we weren't unanimous for the first time, really, in our history, we weren't unanimous.
3: If Anat chose pragmatism, Shulamit, her long-term comrade and friend, opted for idealism. They'd been in it together from day one. Through the ups and the downs, the triumphs, the trials and the tribulations, they'd celebrated births and mourned deaths, prayed side by side in the summer heat and in the winter snow. Together, they'd been spat at, shouted at, called names and insults. But now, for the very first time, they weren't together anymore. Here's Shulamit.
1: And I I called her up and I said, Anat, don't do this. This is a terrible mistake. You can't do this. This is a betrayal of everything that we've been about for all these years. You can't do it. Um, But Anat tried to tell me that she she was the boss and that I had no business raising objections.
3: Anat was right. She was technically the boss. And though most of the original founders opposed the decision, the board by now made up of many of those newer faces, embraced it. Shulamit and her fellow founders felt stung, as if their cause, their movement, had sold out and left them behind.
1: And so we started talking, like, what do we do? What do we do? It's been very distressing and unfortunate. Sad. In
3: 2014, Shulamit made Aliyah, and settled in Jerusalem. She could now attend services regularly, but it wasn't the joyous reunion she had always imagined. Anat led women of the wall into negotiations, and in all fairness, they seemed to get many concessions from the government. The state sweetened the deal, promising to expand the mixed egalitarian prayer area at Robinson's Arch and call it Ezrat Yisrael. It would be significantly larger than the women's section at the Kotel, and would be accessed by the main Kotel Plaza. And most importantly, it would be run and administered by a council which would include representatives of both the Reform and Conservative movements and Women of the Wall. This was a huge step for non-Orthodox Judaism in Israel. Finally, after decades of struggles for recognition, they would officially be acknowledged and funded. In January 2016, the Israeli government approved the plan, which became known as Mitve HaKotel, or the Kotel Compromise. You may remember it, it was a big deal both in Israel and around the world. Some people were thrilled, others outraged. But for some, like Sholamit, it was more personal. It was a betrayal of everything she had fought for.
1: The conservative reform movements have wanted state recognition and funding forever.
3: For her, the price was simply too high. Because in exchange for all those gains at Robinson's Arch, Anat and Women of the Wall had essentially given up on the Kotel itself. It would legally become an orthodox synagogue run by Rabbi Rabinovich.
1: If that's its status, then he is within his rights to throw us out of there. Women's Group, Filat, the Kotel, doing everything that we do, would have been made a crime punishable by seven years in jail and heavy fines.
3: Tempers ran high.
1: What Anat did, and Women of the Wall did, was to take our currency and trade it. So that the reform and conservative movements could get what they want, because they had nothing to offer the state.
3: Anat, of course, sees it differently.
2: We have a role in a choir of many voices demanding religious pluralism, gender equality and tolerance in Israel.
3: Shulamit and some of the other founders didn't give up. After all, this was their organization too. They tried to convince the leadership to reverse its decision, but the rift was simply growing. Anat denied their request to address the board. The verdict, she announced, was final. The compromise was signed. Women of the Wall were just waiting for the new area at Robinson's Arch to be renovated as the deal specified. And then they'd leave the Kotel once and for all. Shulamit couldn't believe that her movement, which originally fought for women's prayer at the Kotel, was now signing a document that made that very thing illegal. She and a few others felt that they had only one option left. Leave and start a new group. The original Women of the Wall. The small, cohesive group of stalwart women splintered. And for all involved, it's a painful breakup.
1: We're sticking to the founding goals of the whole thing, and and they've departed from it.
2: They come to the wall every once in a while to pray. They're never more than 10, 12.
1: (laughs) We have a tefillah. We don't have a publicity event. We don't have a political circus.
3: And the sad irony is that the Kotel compromise that tore them apart. Well, it never happened. The Haredi parties worked behind the scenes, threatening to topple the coalition. And by June 2017, the government had officially suspended the deal. The damage was already done. And even though they still pray in the exact same place, that is the Kotel's women's section, the women of the wall and the original women of the wall are now two separate groups. They rarely talk. Shulamit and Anat are now on two sides of a divide. It's as if there's a tall, sturdy mechitza between them. Anat is still trying to resuscitate the Kotel compromise.
2: Everyone knows that that's the solution. The question is what needs to happen for this solution to be implemented? I hope you have this on tape. I think until one of us is stabbed, they will not implement it. If one of us is stabbed at the wall, they will implement it immediately. It's a tragedy waiting to happen.
3: And Shulamit, on the other hand, is hoping that the Kotel compromise never sees the light of day. I asked her what she'd do if it became illegal for her and her fellow worshippers to pray together at the Kotel. Her response was decisive. It sounded as if it came right out of her favorite childhood book. They will fight you, God said to Jeremiah. But they won't defeat you, because I am with you.
1: We'll fight it. I mean, no change.
3: And these days, when you go, what what goes through your mind? Like, where where are you?
1: When I go there, when I'm not with women, the place repels me. You know, I can't I can't turn off what I'm seeing there. It, it's just so revolting. But when I go with women, I manage to overlook it because it makes me home. The same way it did the first time. It's uplifting and it feels good. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful.
0: Zev Levi. So we end our wall journey where it began. At a wall that for 2,000 years has stood at the center of prayers and dreams, yearnings that have, in a very real sense, kept us together. Whether or not the matter of women's prayer at the Kotel will tear us apart remains to be seen. For some, it's a non-issue. For others, it's indicative of the direction in which the state is going. But what's clear to everyone, I think, is that walls are powerful— We get that. It's part of our collective DNA. As we've seen in many different contexts throughout this mini-series, walls are a double-edged sword. They make us feel safe and warm and protected, but that's also what's dangerous about them. You see, walls can cut us off from what's going on outside, and hiding behind them can give us a false sense of security. What we tried to do through this series was open up small windows in the walls that make up Israeli society. And that's a difficult thing to do, really. I mean, you need to make sure you don't damage the foundations that keep us bonded together. And also, you need to be ready to see the neighbor and let the neighbor see you. But if we pull it off, If we manage to open those windows, then on late afternoons of the end of the summer, just like now, we can let the cool Middle Eastern breeze come in and gaze out at our tiny little country. A country that's still in mid-renovation, still figuring it out, and will, I hope, never stop doing so. And that's both the end of our episode and the end of the Wall miniseries. The season will continue with all kinds of other wonderful themes. But for now at least, we say goodbye to our Walls. You can hear all our previous episodes on our site, IsraelStory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you usually get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And sign up for our newsletter. And dear listeners, please do us a favor. Go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and leave a review. That will really help us get to many new ears. And while we're on the topic, if you like Israel Story, send a link to a friend, download it on your mom's phone, talk about it with your neighbor, One of our biggest goals for the season is to reach new audiences. So if you can, if you're so inclined, do your share and spread the word. If you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story and reach a large and committed audience of people in 192 countries around the world, email us at sponsor at IsraelStory.org. Before we go, I want to give you a great podcast recommendation. Many of you listen to our show because you care about Israel, because you know it's more complicated a place than the one you see on TV or in newspaper headlines. And if that's the case, there's another podcast you should check out. It's called The Promised Podcast, from TLV1. Each week, the fabulous hosts... Noah Efron, Alison Kaplan-Summer, and Don Futterman try to make sense of what's happening here. In politics, in arts, in religion, in the economy. Now, all that sounds pretty serious and heady. And it is. But let me tell you, these people are funny, outrageous, and kind of brilliant. And while they love this place like mad, they've got their qualms, criticisms, and harangues too. And also, they play some great music. Basically, it's like an hour each week of the best conversation in the best bar in Tel Aviv. So check it out, The Promise Podcast, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Dania Kaufman, who first approached us with the idea of doing an episode about Women of the Wall. Sadana and Ronit Beutner, Cheryl Berkner Mack, Renee Feinstein, Leah Aroni, Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardozo, Kfir Shai, Adam Miliner, and Julie Subrim for her always wise editorial advice. Joel Schupak and Yochai Metall scored the piece, and Sela Weisblum, the proud new papa of Talia Ir Weisblum, mixed the episode. Thanks also to Jonathan Grunin, Alyssa Finston, Jennifer Smith, Margalit Rosenthal, Rabbi Aaron Finkelstein, Stefan Wise Temple, Keilat Israel, Wilshire Boulevard Temple, Ikar, the Milken Community Schools, and the LA Federation, who helped bring us out to perform The Wall in Los Angeles. And to all of you out there who are now saying, why didn't we bring Israel's story to our community? Remember, we'll be back in North America with the wall in early 2020. So if you'd like us to come perform near you, contact us at live at israelstory.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Field, Judah Kaufman, Hannah Barg, Ari Wenig, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tsin. Scarlett Dejean, Paula Lem, Yair Farkas, Harry Sultan, Rebecca Carroll, Kayla Levy, Anna Korea, James Feder, and Clem Brookfield have been our wonderful production interns this year. I'm Mishy Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode.
2: And it hit me as a Jew. Guess doesn't just belong to us.
0: We're going to end with an original song we commissioned. It's called A Wall That Has a Door. And it was written and composed by our very own Israel Story band leaders, Ari Wenig and Dotan Mushonov together with Eden Jamshid, Ronnie Wagner-Schmidt, and Ruth Danone. So, till next time, Shalom Shalom, and yalla bye.
4: Gather all the labor we can find Letting go of those we've left behind Brick by brick we're making up our minds Building up the courage to design Sometimes, to protect, we must divide Trust determines who remains inside Learning who we feel we can confide in Accepting what from some we have to hide We build it up and live behind To give life to something beautiful inside When the wall is a window, at least we can see what we've chosen for god to call until the will to climb defeats the fear to fall and the hope for something better says it all the changing of the God has come around so maybe we can finally leave the battleground and maybe we don't need to be surrounded So the walls that we have built don't bring us down We build it up and live behind